The following is a paid presentation. The views expressed do not necessarily represent those of the staff and management of Shiawassee Radio. I'm at a hotel in Cadillac doing cases with Robbie Gumurphy today. Um, going to be here a day or two. Just bagging some stuff out. Sold Chairman Bro Doors um, live with Tom Mankey. And I think it was kind of concerning because what I understand is that Mayor Ken who's somebody I'm supporting, is now going to have competition for District 4, I believe. <sighs> you know, when you're listening to Mr. Brodor, and I know Mr. Boggs, they're a team, I always see them together. When I'm hearing some of the stuff, I'm just kind of amazed right now. Let me break a few things down. This won't be a long, because i got to get to court. Just had a quick break. But I'm hearing about the financial issues in Chi-Town there is financial problems when he spoke to Mr. Mankey. And that leads me to a couple questions. If there are these financial issues, why were raises given with the COVID money? Why were just not raises given but these huge raises? If the county needs money, why should the board have benefited the way they did financially, at least initially? That doesn't make sense to me. Like, what did the board do to earn that money? And it's pretty clear, if you're in a state of financial crisis, money should be going back to the community, not to your own pockets. This leads me to the whole Cindy Garber and Jeremy Root thing with the whole lawyer hiring issue. Why were you going to hire a lawyer for X amount of dollars which was more than you were spending on qualified counsel when you're in financial crisis. I'm not a rocket scientist, right? And God knows I always get involved in political elections. I'll never run for office because I like telling people to f themselves way too easily. We know that, right? But Judge Lestraca said that the county prosecutor should have that job. And it makes sense because the county prosecutor is the one lawyer that's not getting paid enough money for all the work they're doing. We want to bring in different lawyers and spend more of the county's money. How is it when we're in a financial crisis we feel it's appropriate to spend more money? Help me out with this one. Maybe Brian Boggs could help me out. Maybe Greg Rodor could help me out. Maybe Tom Mankey wants to provide his brilliant insight. I don't know. Let me take you back to New Jersey politics for a minute. And how do you know a politician is lying to you? Their lips are moving. But let's be clear. If you don't have money to spend, you do not spend more money. You try to generate more money. Then you can do appropriate things for the community. Other than Marlene Repster, I don't know how the hell we're not looking to do a whole facelift of this board of commissioners. I don't know how these people have the power they do in Chi-Town. I don't get this. But we can't have, guys, we can't have the current board handpick new members. We're going to get the same board we got. One of the things I like about Mayor Ken so much, and I do like about him, and I say this with no financial incentive here, if Mayor Ken wins, it does not put more money in McManus and Amadeo's pocket. It simply doesn't. I care about Shiawassee. 
it's a great community. The sad part about Chi-Town is it seems like lately the idiots are the ones with the voices. And that's frustrating to me. You know, it really is because there's so much brilliance in that community, but we're not hearing the brilliant people right now. Mayor can turn things around in Durant. He could be an asset to that commission. <clears throat> the current state of affairs of the commission, it's pretty clear. You're in a financial situation that the only action I can come up with is desperation. We need to make more money. We need to create more jobs. And we can't do this with the current playbook in place. You guys have had your chance. When Cindy Garber talked about integrity and then spent more money on lawyer fees. Or we talk about integrity and Jeremy Root is making explicit comments to people. And they're taking money that gets on a national stage that didn't belong to them. Guys, stop the bullshit for a minute. Let's work as a team. I care about Shiawasi. And I've always said, you could learn so much from that circuit court. How is it that one block away, there's so much brilliance versus so much stupidity? Exactly, Tyrone. Serve the people, not your pockets. Mayor Ken's a good man. He's not doing anything for the money. He wants to make a difference. He wants to take the principles he put in Durand into this county, and that should be who you support for that district. As far as everybody else, guys, if you want the same bullshit to continue to happen, then keep voting the way you're voting. I don't give a shit if it's a Republican or Democrat. Please vote for the man or the woman that's going to protect your families the most. I promise you this. If we look at the character instead of the image, we're going to see a lot of differences. That board should be changing. We need a facelift. And if you listen to the 11 and 41 minutes, 11 minutes and 41 seconds of Chairman Rodor's commentary with Tom Menke, if that doesn't scream financial crisis, I don't know what does. And if we're in financial crisis, and the board played a role in putting your community in that financial crisis, how the hell do you not make some changes? I like Mayor Ken. I think he's got ideas to create jobs. I think he's got ideas to make money in that community. And I say this as somebody who's got no dog in the race, because the reality is I'm not a Shiawassee resident, but I'm somebody who cares about Shiawassee. And I don't understand how this board can continue to just push out the bullshit that they've been pushing out. Come on, guys. Exercise your voice. And you do that by going to the God ballot box and voting for the right people. This is your cell. This is your bunk. This is the Jail Visit on Shiawassee Radio, live from the Cofield Oil and Propane Studios. Here's attorney Bill Amadeo. As Brett Musburger used to say back in the day, we are live. Bill Amadeo, McManus and Amadeo, and Grable and Associates, and we're going to do some content today. We have three topics. For one, a professional scheme we're about sentencing memorandums, the old sentencing memo. What's the value of the memo? Are they required or are they not required? What's the difference between state and federal court on that issue? Tell you why you want to do a sentencing memo, and I'll tell you a funny story about a Cooley professor 
and I who got into it about the sensing memo one day. Good old sensing memos. How about the NFL Draft in 1998 as an Eagles fan? April 19th, 1998. I'm a kid. And I really want the Eagles to draft Randy Moss. Get into that. And then lastly, sneaking into the club while being under the age of 21. Now you got a couple things on the enemies. I lied about um, I lied about my address to play baseball in Ventnor, and then I uh, stuck to the club with a fake ID when I was a kid. We'll get into all that. Okay. Sentencing memos. What's the story with these? All right. When a client takes a plea, one thing you should always do is do a sentencing memorandum. What a sentencing memo is, is basically telling the court something that's not in the police report, not in the PSI. You want something to jump off the page. Now, for years, many people have said how I'm a lousy motion writer. I'm not going to deny that. Motion writing is not my thing. That's why we bring in good motion writers. But the sentencing memo has been one thing that's always like I've taken control over. Here's why. A sentencing memo has a journalistic flair to it. I was a journalist for years, for people that don't know that. I wrote sports for uh, my whole life. Was my full-time job in law school. For different websites. In high school. Was one of the editors of the Viking newspaper. Atlanta Community College. I was on the Buccaneer. At Stockton, I wrote for the Osprey. At Coy, I wrote for the Pillar. Writing has always been part of my life. But what we learn is that journalism and legal writing are two very different things. I like telling a story. That does not work well with motions. But it sure as hell works great in sentencing memos. What you want to do in a sentencing memo is basically say, yeah, but. We're saying, yeah, but. We want the court to know that there's something else about your client. Maybe they're a football coach. Maybe they donate time to an animal shelter. But you want something to build their character up. It can cushion a blow on a plea. In some counties where there's no killabrews or Cobbs agreements, the sentencing memo plays a vital role. In other counties where there are no sentence agreements, the sentencing memorandum could secure your deal. And you should always serve a copy to probation. Um, probation officers will be thrown off by this. One thing about the probation department, they are not given the respect they deserve. Your probation officer could really make or break somebody. So you should show them the same respect that you do the prosecutor. Hit them with a memo. Let the judge hear something outside of that police report. In federal court, sentencing memos are required. In state court, you should always do one on felony pleas. I do one misdemeanor sometimes, and some judges like that, some judges don't. You know, the judge that will do an immediate sentencing may not want to read it, um, but it all depends on the circumstance. But what you're doing with a sentencing memo is you're going above and beyond for the client. There was a Cooley professor that once told one of my interns that sentencing memos are not required. They're stupid. Well, I think that Cooley professor was kind of stupid. That memo could be the difference between freedom and incarceration. It's showing the court 
that not only is there something unique about your client, but you went the extra mile. You shouldn't charge your client for the sentencing memo. Especially if you're doing a flat fee, it should be part of what you do to help preserve his or her freedom. The memo, in my opinion, separates the elite lawyers from the average lawyers. The average lawyer will say, I don't have time for this. The lawyer wants to go above and beyond. They're going to really push that memo hard. The memo, in my opinion, may be the most important motion that you could write. It's not truly a motion. We can talk about standaway motions and missing evidence instructions and all that good stuff. And there's certainly some unique motions on the horizon. I won't get into that right now, but I'll tell you, the sentencing memo really, your blood, sweat, and tears can protect your client. So young lawyers, you should do them. If you need a copy of one, I'll be happy to provide one. I've written about 500 in my career. And there's a scheme to it, but the whole thing is you got to feel it. You got to feel it. You got to make the judge feel that. Let the words jump off the page so the judge knows that you truly give a damn about your client. Okay. Let's talk about the NFL draft in 1998. This is interesting. April 18, 1998. I am a kid in New Jersey. And I am bartending at Tropicana while I'm in college. And the draft is coming up. Now, as an Eagles fan, and this story will encompass both Eagles and Lions fans, I wanted the Eagles to draft Randy Moss so bad. And everybody thought Randy Moss was going to go in the top 10. As football historians know, I think he went number 21 to the Minnesota Vikings. And there's certainly an argument that Randy Moss is the best receiver of all time. Up for debate. You got your Jerry Rices, you got your Charlie Joyners. I mean, we go on and on. There's so many great receivers, T.O. But uh, Randy Moss was special. He was freaky, man. He had such amazing leaping ability. He had great hands. And he went into the perfect situation. He went into a situation with the Minnesota Vikings where they had Chris Carter, who's a Hall of Fame receiver. They had Jake Reed, who was a damn good receiver. Randall Cunningham would end up being his quarterback in 1998 after Brad Johnson got hurt. And Randall, say what you want about Randall Cunningham, Randall Cunningham had a cannon. He couldn't always read defenses the way you wanted him to, but the guy was an amazing athlete. He had a gun. He could throw the ball 65, 70 yards down the field to hit Randy Moss. So Randy fell into the perfect situation. As an Eagles fan, we drafted number 11 that year. And I'm working at Tropicana. I was doing a double that day. And we go up to the cafeteria. And you're trying to watch the draft in the cafeteria. And we don't think Randy Moss is going to be there at number 11. And he's there. And we're so excited. Like, me and a few Eagle fans were sitting down at the table... And I'm on my break when the Eagles are picking. It was just luck how that happened. And they're talking, you know, who are they going to take? What are they going to do? Here's Randy Moss. And the Eagles picked Trey Thomas. <clears throat> now, 
probably a blog for another time, I could tell you heartbreaking stories about draft picks the Eagles have made. We could talk about Mike Mamula over Warren Sapp. We could talk about so many hits and misses, right? Trey Thomas was a good player. They have good offensive linemen. Was an all-pro once, played in three Pro Bowls. Very solid career. But he wasn't Randy Moss. We had a chance to take this game changer. Remember just sitting there. Like, it was amazing that Moss even fell to number 11, in my opinion. If he didn't have drama, he probably would have been a top five pick. He had some issues where he got kicked out of Notre Dame. And some stuff happened at Florida State. He ended up going to Marshall. But this guy was talented. And here he is at number 11. And the Eagles just passed on him. Now, I don't come to Cooley until 2004. And since my breaking into Michigan, if you would, it's hard not to support the Lions. And Mike P., I see you out there. The Lions, um, I've always felt connected to them. Maybe I just feel bad for them. I don't know. But coming to Michigan, you just really feel like you want to see the Lions turn it around. And when we see the Bengals in the Super Bowl, you got to think, what's it going to take to turn the Lions around? I do like the direction the Lions are going, but let's go back to 1998. Now, this is before the iPhone and all that. So I'm working at Banquet and I have a TV on there. The Lions pick at number 20. And holy shit, Randy Moss is available at 20. How is this guy falling this far? And I'm thinking, well, the Lions are going to take him. He's a perfect fit for Detroit. He's going to be a playmaker. He's a stud. He's got it all. And the announcers are saying, well, Moss will probably go to the Lions. It was amazing the Cowboys didn't take him. Because the Cowboys were going to take him, and then the Titans took Kevin Dyson. But here's Moss falling, 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 and he falls into the Lions' lap at number 20. And instead of taking Randy Moss, the Lions take Terry Fair. Let me be clear. Because a draft bust, there's so many documentaries and ESPN 30 for 30s about this. If you made it to the NFL, you had a hell of a collegiate career. And I'm not going to put down anybody that's played Pro Bowl. So nothing against Terry Fair. But how the hell does a talent like Randy Moss slip through the cracks like that? And the Lions went with Terry Fair. And that next pick, the very next pick, the Vikings, they get Randy Moss. And all I think is what could have been. Now... There's arguments, right? Maybe Randy Moss, if he goes to the Lions or the Eagles, doesn't fall into the perfect situation. Because he sure as hell fell into the perfect situation in Minnesota. Special talent, though. He could have been playing in Detroit his whole career. Could have been playing in Philly. Things just happened. With the NFL draft upon us, Eagle fans, we have long suffered... With drafts, we trade up, we trade back, we do this, we do that, we dance around with these draft picks. We never actually just pick the best available player. And Randy Moss, in my opinion, was the best available player. Peyton Manning went number one. 
And the whole debate was between Peyton Manning and Ryan Leaf. And people asked the Colts, what was the decision between Peyton Manning and Ryan Leaf? It's kind of funny thinking about that today, right? Because here's Peyton Manning, top 10, maybe top 5 quarterback of all time. And here's Ryan Leaf, who was a bust. And I'm glad Ryan Leaf has turned his life around. But I took something from this. They interviewed, they being the Colts, interviewed Peyton Manning. And they said, if you're the number one pick, what are you going to do? And Peyton Manning said, I'm going to have dinner with my family. We're going to watch some tape who we're playing this year. I'm going to learn about our offense. I'm going to do this. I'm going to do that. I want to be the best possible player I could be to help this organization. Great answer, Peyton. They asked Ryan Leaf, if you're the number one pick, what are you going to do? And Ryan Leaf goes, I'm going to Vegas with my boys. We're going to drink all night and party. We're going to celebrate like it's 1999. There's something he said about that. Ryan Leaf was celebrating for the moment. Peyton Manning was thinking of the future. Keep that in mind. Because on paper, Ryan Leaf was a better pick than Peyton Manning. But Peyton Manning checked those boxes. He had that brain. He had that IQ. He had that work ethic. He had all these things that an organization would want. And Ryan Leaf was this flashier guy with a better arm. Okay. I like to think Ryan Leaf could have had a great NFL career. He had some substance abuse issues. He had some mental health issues. But Peyton Manning on paper was a safe pick. Ryan Leaf was the gamble. But everybody thought Ryan Leaf would be the number one pick. Peyton's work ethic won the day. Because it sounds crazy today. You know, you're talking 24 years later, but Ryan Leaf had more natural talent than Peyton Manning. It's always been important to me that work ethic can overcome natural ability. And that was the 98 draft. You know, and back in 98... 97, 98. And you're right, Mike. Peyton did have his father behind him, No question about it. One of the things we used to do, and I never drank. People know that. I'm not a drinker. But we used to sneak into the club. Scott Zolber. Q. Andrew Frieda and myself. I'm going to tell you a story one night about when we went to a club and i've always had this um heightened level of confidence right and sometimes that's really helped me in things sometimes been displaced and uh this night it might have been displaced a little bit it's completely misplaced so we go to this club with our fake ids Scott Zolber, may he rest in peace, he was the smartest, one of the smartest guys I ever knew. Q had the most, he was so level-headed. Great pharmacist today. Drew, my boy, two of the only white kids in our neighborhood, we had such a bond, Drew was tough. And I was kind of like a mix of everything, I mean, I was the leader of the group, but, you know, these other guys had better attributes than me and this or that. We get into the club. And the club, it was weird. We're at a casino. 
and there was this thing. Now, I have dyslexia really bad at this point, right? And I believe that too, Joe Bear. Moss would have taken the Lions to the Super Bowl. So we're at the club, and they're doing these words, right? It goes this way, and it goes that way, like in reverse. And here's Q, Drew, and Scott, like, laughing. Ah, ha, ha, you see what I did there? Remember, I got dyslexia. I'm, like, looking like, hmm, what? Because I don't understand what's so funny. I can't see it clearly. This was a sign of things to come. So you're at the club with the fake ID and dyslexia is kicking in. And I'm going to be the sober one. Me and Q would be the sober ones. Always the voice of reasons in that regard. Drew was drinking that night. Scotty Z was hitting the Amaretta Sours. Because Scotty Z used to drink Amaretta Sours like it was going out of fashion when we were kids. And there's these girls from college. And they have their fake IDs, too. And I know some of them. Scott liked this one girl. And we're talking to these four girls. There's four of us. And um, this one girl was just listening to my story. And we're talking. I always had to get the gab. And her and I, we had a couple classes together. Now, if you could text like you can in 2022, back in 1998, Scotty Z would have sent me a text. But Scott really liked this girl just before he was married and all that. And Scott had no filter when he was drinking, right? So this girl's hanging on my every word. And I'm kind of like the leader here where I'm like, all the girls are hanging out with us, but I'm the one leading the conversation. So Scott, he's really drunk. And he's throwing these drinks back. And he's like, B, don't f***ing dance. I'm like what he goes you're awesome you're amazing but you're a horrible dancer and if you dance we're gonna lose our chance tonight now like 19 20 years old i'm like what do you think oh i'm a great dancer when i dance it was like kind of like seizures or something like that it was really bad like i could not dance to save my life but i thought i was a good dancer so now Got this dyslexia working. I got the seizure working on the dance floor. I'm buying people drinks, but we're not dancing yet. And Scott's smart enough to understand if you don't dance, we're going to be successful with these women. But if you do dance, we're going to lose our opportunity. Please don't f***ing dance, B. But the music's playing. I want to dance. I'm having a good time, right? Q, skeptical. I don't know. He goes, you're not a great dancer, Bill. Drew is drunk. Andrew Frito, to be clear. <laughs> exactly, Mike. Drew. He's like. And it was the alcohol talking, right? He's like throwing shots. But like, oh, you're a great dancer. Just fucking dance. So I say to these girls, you want to dance? Hell yeah, let's go dance. So I'm out there. And it was like repellent, man. I, I'm doing these horrible moves. And. It's just, I, I can't dance. And you see Scott Zolber at the bar. And he's drinking, just putting his head on his shoulders. And these girls that were so into us, mainly me as the leader here, I killed it for everybody. Because I had to dance. You know? And 
So, sorry. I'll take it back to the moment. It was total repellent, man. And Scott's over. He's just, he's drunk. Drew's drunk. Drew's telling me how good I was on the dance floor. I don't understand what happened. Kid was like, yeah, I kind of knew this was going to happen. <laughs> and um, Scott is like pissed. He's like, God damn me. If you wouldn't have danced, we would have had a great night. But you, you had to go dance, didn't you? You're not drinking. You can't see anything. It's all in reverse. And you're out there f***ing dancing. You had them under every word, but you had to dance. I feel bad. I'm like, shit, I didn't want to dance, right? Anyway. So. We uh, went home. And, um. I read a novel or something that night. It was a good night for reading, but you know, it just didn't work out. The, the book was good, but we thought other things could happen that night. Epic fail. Anyway, that's a story of sentencing memos, uh, our failure when we stuck into a club, and um, the Eagles not picking Andy Moss. <laughs> the Jail Visit with attorney Bill Amadeo from McManus and Amadeo. Connect with McManus and Amadeo at McManusAmadeo.com or call 800-392-7311. This is The Jail Visit on Shiawassee Radio. So, fair warning on this one. It's been a long couple days, man. It's been a long couple days. So, some weird stuff could come out tonight. I don't know. I'll start by saying this. I was telling a story. I was telling a story about how this one kid, one of the ugliest kids you ever saw in your life, he was somewhat of a bully, but he really wasn't tough. And I told a story of him and I get into it one day at St. James. I never mentioned his name. All I said was, the ugliest kid in the class was talking a lot of shit. And I swear to you, this guy emails me on Facebook and says, why are you talking about me? And I responded, I said the ugly kid in class. What made you think it was you? We are going to talk about St. James tonight. And a warning on this is when I'm tired, things get really strange. We notice, right? Today we're going to talk about Christmas shows at St. James. We're going to talk about the fashion shows at St. James. They're all about Paper Wings by Rise Against. So, sit back. Grab your favorite beverage. Whatever that may be. And let's kick it back to Vetner, New Jersey. Some time ago. Alright, so, being a Catholic school, St. James was really big into these Christmas shows. I mean, we would practice for these shows, right? And... I always use the hypo of like having a blind Uber driver. I want you to imagine like these untalented teachers trying to teach you to sing and dance for parents to come. And when the parents would come to these shows, they had their own little cliques. Like if you gave X amount of dollars to the church and school, you sat in the front rows. Naturally, my family was in the back row. Yeah, we were Italians from Atlantic City. We weren't Irish from St. James, from Bettner. And it was really, a, it was a weird thing. Like, at St. James, in my opinion, 
like being from Atlantic City was one barrier. Now, being Italian was another barrier. It was an Irish church. They made you know about that all the time. You know, we are Irish. Father Sullivan used to always tell those jokes, Amadego, this and that. <sighs> so one year was actually like seventh grade. I like stole the show. They had this one character named Luigi. He was an Italian kid, right? And I grabbed the microphone, I did my thing, and the whole crowd roared and laughed. I remember after the show, one of the teachers came up to me, and they said, Hey, you really weren't that good. I just want you to know that you were not as good as the crowd cheered you on. And I thought that was really interesting. Hey, Mayor Ken, how are you? It was kind of fascinating how the Christmas show was a time for these people like flex their muscles. They would come in to watch these kids on the stage, right? And none of us were that talented. And these teachers, who also were not talented and very frustrated in many ways, they practice singing. And I mean, and imagine somebody who can't sing trying to teach you how to sing. Imagine somebody who can't dance trying to teach you how to dance and then put on this parade for all these idiots to watch. And, you know, I always said this. We were poor, right? We were poor growing up. And we thought they had money. What we learned was they had more money than us, but they really didn't have money. You know, they really didn't. But they would like flex. Looking back today, we would see certain parents come in with fake furs on or fake pearls. And they would just be chilling out at this show like they were the in crowd. And the teachers and the priest would like cater to who were the important parents. And then the parents that were nobodies would be, you know, stuck in the back. You know, they had little snickers going on. Now, meanwhile, here's the way the script went. If you were one of the chosen ones, you definitely were given the star parts in the show. The one year I stole the show, it was a, it was a total misnomer there. I just got the microphone, I just went off, and it was supposed to go that way. They always said, this kid get this part, and that kid gets this part, and it was based upon who was the in crowd. Now, by the way, the people that were the in crowds, the script didn't exactly go according to plan. The ones who were the stars of the show, the ones that got, when they were altar boys, that got the whole baby Jesus and bring him up, the ones that were the golden children, they really didn't pan out the way we thought. I find in life, and this was fascinating about the St. James Christmas shows, it's always that one-off character. It's that one-off character you don't see that basically becomes like the phoenix rising. But the ones that were supposed to be the superstars just didn't work out, you know? And these Christmas shows, if it was foreshadowing, it was wrong. Whoever wrote this script, they were so awful in this sh Christmas shows at St. James were just a miserable experience because any shortcomings you thought you had were magnified. And the teachers that picked the kids, 
they would let you know that student A gets to be a star because student A is a somebody. You're a nobody. Oops. In hindsight, a lot of teachers and the quote-unquote producers of these shows, they had nothing going on in their life. They were a sad group of unattractive people. Um, their talent and beauty was equally missing. And it was just one of those things. Now, you could look back and laugh about it, but at 12 years old, it was a, what the hell? Why am I not the star of the show? The one year I became the star, yeah, you heard about that. Things got really interesting, though, during the fashion shows. Fashion shows were after, I was in college when this happened, right? So what St. James used to do is have these fashion shows to raise money for the church. My best friend Q and I, we were in college, and we would work at these fashion shows. I would bartend, Q would be cooking in the back or whatever. We wanted to stay connected to our church. That was this big thing. And to me, the fashion shows were basically like the Christmas shows on steroids. Now, I'm not sure why we even worked at these fashion shows, but we did. And all you said about the fashion shows is you'd have these unattractive people, right? They'd be up on the stage. They'd be doing their thing. Um, they'd be showing off fake jewelry or fake furs. And this lousy music would be playing. People would throw money into the collection plate. I gotta think, so many times with the church when I was growing up, every event was held to try to create more money. Where that money went, I don't know. This was fascinating about the fashion shows, though. In church, there were these cliques. There were these cliques of people that, like, who was in crowd and who wasn't as they got older. They had, like, their inner circle. Now, here's these guys on a Thursday night who are chilling out with the rotisserie chickens at the St. James Fashion Shows, and they're kind of making fun of you when you're in college. I want you to think about this. Most of these guys couldn't get laid in a woman's prison. Um, their wife was probably the only woman they've ever been with, and they're chilling at this fashion show talking shit. And what we learned from the fashion shows, the ugly people are on the stage, the fake jewelry's being shown off, the assholes are in their cliques, like cavorting, telling you how they're going to do things. And here's Q and me. We're just looking at each other saying, man, this is bull. Why are we even here? It was such a learned behavior thing, you know? It was learned behavior thing in the fact that we have this mindset that the church is something of importance. I think religion is a great thing. If religion works for you, that's awesome. But when you shove religion down someone's throat, this is where problems occur, right? And the me, those fashion shows magnified that. You'd have these groups of people that really couldn't make it in the real world. But at Memorial Hall in St. James on Portland Avenue, they had this sense of entitlement. They had this sense of importance. And God forbid you were an outside thinker. I told this story before, but I brought it up one day at the fashion show. This group of supposedly open-minded Catholics were talking shit. 
they're like quoting Bible verses to each other, like you or I would talk sports. And I'm just shaking my head. And they said, who's your favorite saint? And I said, Bobby Bear. Bobby Bear was the quarterback of the New Orleans Saints at the time. And nobody really got the joke. Father Sullivan got the joke. Who's your favorite saint? The quarterback of the New Orleans Saints. Ha, ha, ha. And he goes, you see, Amadego, that's why you're not going to go anywhere in life. Now, he would say this as he's downing a bottle of Johnny Black, telling jokes with this group of ass. The group of ass really couldn't make it outside these halls Memorial Hall. But one day I was pissed off. Now, understand something. I'm smarter than these people by far. I was better looking, but I didn't know that back then. But I was definitely smarter, and I was starting to feel that. And Q was smarter than me. But Q didn't always have that aggressive personality. Like, I've always been over the top. And I said, you guys talk a lot of shit about Martin Luther, don't you? And they're like, well, he turned his back on the Catholic faith. Did he? Or did Martin Luther, when he started the Lutheran faith, say, hey, guys... The church is screwing things up. Let's fix it. What I learned at those fashion shows is that free thought, being open-minded, being outside the box. You scare the shit out of people when you do that, guys. Here's what I want you to take from the fashion shows, all right? Conformity is a great thing if it's for you. But don't let anybody tell you how you're supposed to act. How are you supposed to dress? How are you supposed to behave? If you're an outside-the-box thinker, if you're that person who just sees things differently, that's awesome. But you will scare the shit out of people. And the fashion shows, guys, are about learned fucking behavior. We have to look a certain way. We have to act a certain way. And there was this script that was written. It was kind of alluded to at the Christmas shows, but it became really fucking significant at the fashion shows as you got older. The script said, this person is here, and this person's beneath them, and that person's beneath them. Hey, Brian Lundy. So, when the person who's deemed beneath them jumps up, breaks a pattern. I got a good friend named Jerry Dowdy in New Jersey, like an uncle to me. Jerry always taught me this. In life, when you break a pattern... Scares the shit out of people, man. You don't have to be who somebody else tries to make you. Okay? You got something different about yourself. Run with it. And, you know, all the jokes about St. James and growing up in the ghetto and all that. My biggest issue with St. James is this. My biggest problem is this. If you weren't a conformist... You were deemed not to be successful. Why the f should somebody try to make you a conformist? It's one thing to say, hey, I believe this. Or I practice this. And if you don't agree with me, we could still be cool. You could share your thoughts, I could share my thoughts. But when somebody tries to shove that shit down your throat. When somebody tells you you're a bad person or you won't be successful because you don't follow the leader that's a problem and the fashion shows at st james in the 90s 
controlled that, man. Those assholes are probably still at those fashion shows today. If I told you how much hate mail I get from blocked emails in New Jersey, you'd be blown the f*** away, guys. You know, for me to come on the radio or come on podcast or do what I do in court, it's different. I mean, it trolls people in, right? But it's f***ing different. And where I come from, being different is not accepted. My whole life has been about being f***ing different. You don't come from the ghetto of Atlantic City to being the top, allegedly the top criminal lawyer in Michigan without a god story. And I could tell you, in that journey, it's been people telling you you can't, or people telling you you shouldn't. Remember this on your rise up, okay? Misery loves company. And even your closest friends may not want to see you reach your goals. Sometimes people reaching their goals is viewed as failures of others. But it shouldn't be that way. If somebody's really successful, good for them. It doesn't affect you. It could motivate you, but you shouldn't try to bring them down. That's what I f***ing hate about St. James, man. They tried to bring you down. Because you didn't see things their way. You didn't look a certain part. You didn't dress a certain part. You spoke your mind. You didn't conform. That's what those f***ing fashion shows were. I can tell you today, the people at the fashion shows, they weren't wearing good jewelry. They weren't dressed in fine clothes. They were putting on a fucking show. And it wasn't a fashion show. The show was their mother fucking life. They faked it. And in their quest to feel important, they tried to stymie creative thought. So, for the people at St. James that got a problem with me, well, you go yourself first of all but i want you to understand something part of the fire that comes out is because you told me i couldn't do it and when i kept trying to do it you kept trying to like douse me it's bullshit how many kids at saint james were outside the box thinkers that were discouraged instead of encouraged how many times has talent been destroyed because it was different. And I don't think I was ever the a little boy looking forward to our cute classmates during Christmas shows. I would have rather been at the Christmas shows and hearing fucking Linda McDevitt teach stuff she didn't know about. But um, I didn't enjoy those Christmas shows. Conformity is a roadblock to success. And that, my friends, was the fucking fashion shows at St. James. I'm going to end the night on this. People have been asking my opinions on songs. Paper Wings, Rise Against. 2004. In 2004, you had your CDs, right? One of the first CDs I ever got in Michigan was Rise Against. And the most powerful song on that was Paper Wings. And, you know, you just came to Michigan, you left Jersey, you left your bartending job, you left all that, right? The song is really about moving on. The song is about leaving shit behind. 
the songs about gambling on yourself. And, you know, it's such a powerful track. When the Eric Coleman trial, when I was prepping for it, I'd put my iPad on and I would just go for a walk and listen to this song. And I'd play the openings and closings my mind so much. And I felt like that song was always like a insurance policy for me. Whenever I was down, I would just think about this song and the lyrics are so powerful. I'm going to read you the chorus that goes like this. And I can't tell if you're laughing. Between each smile, there's a tear in your eye. There's a train leaving town in an hour. It's not waiting for you, and neither am I. What that meant to me, my internal process on it, was you can't tell if they were cheering for you or cheering against you, but you were leaving. And maybe there was somebody you were connected with back home, right? But you had to do you. And I'm going to just be real about this. If I didn't leave for Michigan in 2004, I don't know if I ever would have left. And I think being in Jersey works for some people. My aunt and my mom miss them every day. They would never leave Jersey to save their life. But for me, I had to get the f*** out. And I heard that song the first week up in law school. And it just kind of put me at ease. It just kind of made me realize, you know what? Times are changing, and change is not something you need to be scared of. Change is something you can just f***ing embrace. So I'm always going to love that song. The darkest of days gives me inspiration. The brightest days just makes me smile. The beauty of that song is no matter what you got going on that day, it could hit you hard. And songs like that, they're just powerful. Alright. Well, St. James, Paper Wings, Fashion Shows, Christmas Shows, blah blah. Alright guys, I'm Bill Amadeo, McMaster Amadeo, and Grable Associates. We are done for tonight. See ya. Proceeding was a paid presentation by McManus and Amadeo PLLC. Listeners of this program should contact their attorney to obtain advice with respect to any particular legal matter. No listener should act or refrain from acting on the basis of information within this program without first seeking legal advice from counsel in the relevant jurisdiction. Only your individual attorney can provide assurances that the information and your interpretation of it is applicable or appropriate to your particular situation. Listening to this program using any associated website or related links or resources does not create an attorney-client relationship between the listener and host, contributors, or contributing law firms. All liability with respect to actions taken or not taken based on the contents of this program are hereby expressly disclaimed. If they want a war, McManus and Amadeo will give them a war. McManus and Amadeo PLLC, a Michigan criminal defense firm serving 16 counties. You and your loved ones deserve a criminal defense firm that believes that your life and freedom are worth fighting for. Matt McManus, Bill Amadeo, and the McManus and Amadeo team of attorneys, investigators, and case managers will take the lead with a vast knowledge and legal experience across the state of Michigan to get the best possible result for you. Learn more at McManusAmadeo.com. Schedule a free consultation 24-7 by calling 800-392-7311.